Amen. And if you would remain standing and turn in your Bibles to Hosea, Old Testament book of Hosea, we are in chapter 2, making our way from verse 14 to verse 23 this morning. And it's good for you guys to be bringing your Bibles and to be turning uh, there so that you see it, because though we have the words on the screen for a moment throughout the message, we refer back to these, and it's also important that you not just hear, but that you see the Word of God, that you bookmark it, that you uh, invest it into your own soul. But this is what the Word of the Lord says, Hosea chapter 2, verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at a time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names from the Baals from her mouth, and they shall remember, be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and in mercy I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil. They shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are. Oh, my God. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father God, your word tells us to set our minds on the spirit. Because if our minds are set on the things of the flesh, that brings death. But to set our minds on the Spirit brings life and peace. And that is what we pray for this morning as we are in your word collectively as your people. That you would bring life and peace to our souls this morning. That your Spirit would minister to us and show us the beauty, God, of who you are. That we would know you. That we would know you as Lord pray for help to honor your word through the preaching of this message and may we honor you together as we listen and hear your scriptures and it's in the name of Jesus we pray amen hey you guys can be seated aloha hey it is good to be with you you guys have been a little bit more chipper in the mornings it's awesome sometimes this service is just a little bit of a drag but it's not not that you're a drag but it's just we're still waking up at least I am uh, I just insulted like everyone in here. I'm so sorry. Let's just start over. Good morning. It's good to be with you. 
Uh, I do want to say, by the way, today is a special day. This weekend, we, we uh, mem- uh, remember and want to say thank you to all the veterans. So church, if you would put your hands together for all those who've served, we want to say thank you for your service on this Veterans Day and uh, remembering even the end of what would be known as World War I as uh, an excuse for us to also thank uh, everyone uh, who, for their service to this country. And so I want to thank you. And um, my wife is coming to second service, but it's our, our 12-year anniversary today as well. So I just want to say thank you guys. Um, 12 is not special in any way. It's just not a special number, but it's a number. And I love my wife, and she loves me. And, uh, and we're grateful to be um, just continuing to grow in Christ's likeness and knowing God and knowing one another. And so 12 years... Uh, and it's easy, I almost forget, but Sebastian's 11, so just Sebastian plus one is 12, that's our anniversary, and so we lined that up on purpose, though, to get married on a three-day weekend, because um, it was like, hey, it'd be nice to be able to take off the anniversary on for a three-day weekend, and, but I, I became a pastor, so I don't have the weekends off, so, but there's uh, no other place I'd rather be this morning than with you, God's word, so thankful to be with you. The reason we gather, the reason we sing, the reason we pray, preach, listen, is because God and his word is revealing himself to us. That's why we're here. Maybe you're not here for that reason, but that is why we are doing what we're doing, is because God and his holy word is made himself known to us in the scriptures. So whenever we approach the Bible, whenever we approach the scriptures, We should not approach the Bible first with the intent of what's in it for me. What does this say to me? How is God speaking to me? What does God have for me in these verses? We approach uh, the Bible oftentimes with this consumer mindset because that's what our culture has groomed us to. It's a consumer mindset. What about me? That's not how we should approach the Bible because the Bible is primarily not a book about you or me. It is a book about God. It is an autobiography. God has written about himself and he's revealed himself in the scriptures. And so the way we should approach scriptures rightly is not by asking what's in it for me, but what does this text, what do these scriptures, whatever scriptures they are, what do they first reveal about God? That is how we should approach the Bible. And today, this ugly unfolding story is going to reveal the beauty of who God is. That as shocking, as gross and disgusting and vile as Hosea has been, it is in fact revealing something to, about God to each of us and we are going to see divine attributes of God at work in ways that, that the story exposes and reveals to us. Even uncomfortable. Let's just be honest. Like I was talking to someone uh, this week, and it was their first time to church last Sunday. And he's like, I've never heard the word whore so much in my life, let alone at church. It was really weird. I'm like, dude, I'm sorry, brother, but it's, it's the Bible. And so, um, but, but here, it's, it's not just about that. It is, it's far more about revealing to us who God is is because we know Jose, it is a heart-wrenching prophetic novel between a faithful husband, Hosea, and his unfaithful wife, Gomer. Telling a bigger picture, animating a spiritual reality of 
God who is faithful to his unfaithful bride, his unfaithful people, Israel. And even though Gomer, she has everything she needs, she still runs to other lovers for water, for nourishment, for clothing, for income, for drink, ultimately for fulfillment and satisfaction. And like Gomer, Israel has done the same thing. Israel has ran off with other lovers, not because God hasn't provided for them, but simply because they think that going to those others' lovers will satisfy. And so what they did is they ran to the God of Baal. They worshipped Baal, which is the Canaanite god, a false god. But the thing is, before we distance ourselves from this ancient story, we are Gomer. We are not Hosea. We are Gomer. Because like Gomer, all of us have said what Gomer has said in verse 15 of chapter 2. I will go to my other lovers who will give me. My other lovers, other than the true love of God, the sobering reality is every single one of us have said, Yes, God, you made me. Yes, God, you gave the breath of my lungs. Yes, God, you love me through Jesus who, who you sacrificed on the cross, but I'm going to go to other lovers. And so we do. In fact, Paul said in Romans chapter 3, no one seeks after God. It's not that we're not searching. It's that we are searching, but we're searching in all the wrong places instead of searching for love in God through Jesus. And so, this is what's happening here. And so the, the picture, though, is that God sees my sinful rebellion like he does, like we see Gomer cheating on her husband with other men. That is the equivalent of my sin. It is infidelity. It is wrong. It is unfaithfulness. And so what God is doing in verse 9 to verse 13, we looked at it last week, but God is lifting the curtain. God is undoing their prosperity. He's going to take away their prosperity to expose their idolatry. It's like, I don't know if you've seen those YouTube videos or maybe it's a reality in your home where like, the parent goes and turns off the TV and their kid's like, in the middle of this part of the game and the kid loses his mind. Or if you have a dog and this dog is just really hungry and it could be the best dog in the world, but you give that dog a bone and you try to take that bone away. God is going to punish Israel as an act of punishment by taking away what they want. But it's a gracious punishment, as we will see. But what's crazy is as this is happening, Israel is still outwardly worshiping. They're still doing the external religious things. Verse 11 says they're keeping the feasts. Israel is praying. They, they worshiped him with their mouths, but their hearts did not love him. In other words, they had a ring on their finger, but their hearts ran wild. They were bewedded to God, but they were in no way acting like they belonged to God as a husband would belong to his wife and a wife would belong to her husband. And they're totally deceived because they're thinking God is okay with this. After all, look at all the blessing I have. I got money. I have blessing. I have abundance. Things are going pretty well. So God must be okay with me then. Because we've been blessed by God and God approves of us, we can, like Israel, feel this entitlement to God's blessing. So what is God going to do? He's going to remove that blessing. God is going to uncover and expose their unrepentant spiritual adultery. If God loves his 
people, he will expose them of perverted worship. See, the point is, it's not that Israel stopped worshiping. It's that they forgot God. And they continued worshiping other gods. Hosea 2.13, so they went after other lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. You guys, we worship. It's not that we stop worshiping, it's just that we've changed the object we worship. Have we set our affections on God's blessings and not God? Do we love what God gives instead of loving the giver of those good gifts? If so, we've forgotten God. So what is God going to do then? He's going to speak. He's going to say something. And after he says something, at some point later in the future, because this is a prophetic book, it's speaking of what will happen, he's going to do something. And what are we going to learn about God's unsearchable attributes? Well, look at verse 14. Therefore, behold. Okay, given that introduction we just did, what is going to happen now? Therefore. Therefore what? I'm going to divorce my people. I'm going to abandon them because they've abandoned me. I have, they have forgotten me, so I'm going to forget about them and make them pay. Therefore, behold, what is he going to say? Verse 14, I will allure her. I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. What's astonishing at this moment is Israel is not saying, I'm wrong. I need a sinner. I've screwed up. I've blown it. Israel is not there. God's bride at this present moment could care less about God. They have ignored him. The savior they wanted, the person they've tried to be wed themselves to is Baal. Yet in this divine plot twist, of all the things that God rightly could have said, God says, therefore, behold, I will allure her. This is the voice of grace. God wants his unfaithful wife back. And honestly, the last thing anyone could have expected God to say to his unfaithful wife, is anything but tenderness here. He's speaking tenderly to her. He is wooing her in. Yeah, maybe, I don't know, when I read this, the very first time I kind of knew this story, but in my mind I was imagining like what I would have said if I was God. You know those, those very wrong thoughts to have? Heretical thoughts? Maybe I will allure her into the wilderness and scream curses and accusations at her. I will allure her into the wilderness and give her an anniversary gift. Here's a snake woman. Open it up. It's poisonous, but <clears throat> you know it'll be good for us both, actually. But that's not what God does. It's not what God does. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and speak 
tenderly to her. This is God being gracious to her. Guys, God is gracious. When we say the word grace, we're not just saying something light or something just a cliche Christian word. Grace is favor that is given to someone who does not deserve it. Someone being given something and they've done nothing to earn it. Nothing to earn it. Gomer and Israel deserves no grace, but that is what grace is. It is, it is the husband, it is the, 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 the groom of the bride being gracious. This is the story of Hosea, and it isn't just the story of Hosea. You guys, this is the theme of the story of the, of the entire Bible. The Bible has a lot of stories, a lot of subplots and themes, but the ultimate theme of the entire Bible is that God is a gracious God. God is gracious. Everyone is unfaithful, but God is faithful. If you were to boil down what the the history of redemption is, that is the history of redemption. And even though the wife threw herself into the arms of her other lovers, the voice of grace speaks. And the first thing we see is the voice of grace is tender. It is tender. Notice here, Israel be led into the wilderness. Now, the wilderness, it's not just like some romantic adventure into some beautiful country, the wilderness. It's actually speaking of the desert. (laughs) They're going to be led into the wilderness, the desert, where there is nothing. No water, no accommodations, nothing. And he's going to lead them into the desert to make them aware of their sin and their need for him. Because Israel's rebellion is so deep at this moment that they will only realize their true thirst for God when God removes everything else away and he leads them into the wilderness. Because again, they have forgotten God. And I don't know what your testimony is, but there have been seasons and times in my life where I have forgotten God. Sure, I intellectually believed in him. I would profess and confess with my mouth and my actions would say otherwise that I looked externally like I was doing all these things for God. But in reality, I loved his blessings instead of loving him. And I was an idolater. And what God does is in those moments of unrepentant spiritual adultery is God will bring us into the wilderness. And he will take us to the wilderness. And in the very moments in the wilderness, which we know we deserve, we think we are going to get more punishment and judgment from God. What happens? He speaks to us. And when he speaks to us, God is tender. I'm expecting more ridicule, more punishment, more frustration from him. But we encounter God's kindness in the wilderness. The wilderness is actually a grace 
Because it's in the wilderness God makes us aware of our sin and is in the wilderness God makes us aware of his grace. God makes us aware of our sins so we realize our need for grace and God will allure us into the empty wilderness to show that our thirst can only be satisfied by him. And when God speaks tenderly, he allures us from other lovers into true love. Look, look at verse 15 again. And there, where? In the wilderness, I will give her vineyards. Vineyards don't grow in the wilderness naturally. But with God they do because it is the place of the wilderness. God blesses. But, but compare this. Look at verse 15. I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope, which the valley of Achor is a place of judgment because of Israel's rebellion. There she shall answer as in the days of her youth at a time when she came out of the land of Egypt. What is that compared with? What God could have done in verse 12. And I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees. So God is going to destroy her man-made efforts for her pursuits of satisfaction. And instead, he's going to say, I'm going to draw you out into the wilderness. And in that place of emptiness, I'm going to give you fulfillment. Because that is what God does. And the sovereign, omnipotent God who spoke creation into existence, who keeps the stars burning, the planets spinning perfectly on the axis that they are intended to, whose voice is like thunder, and the moment of our spiritual shame and adultery, he speaks kindly to you and me and he gives us what we cannot give ourselves life romans 2 4 says oh do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience not knowing that god's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance what leads you and me to repentance the kindness of god when in the very moment he should act in judgment, he is gracious and he allures us and he speaks tenderly to us. You guys, it's when we realize that we deserve sin and in the place of more judgment we see how kind he is. How can we not repent? How can we not repent? He has allured us. One of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. I'm just going to read it to you because it is so profound. Titus 3, 4 and 5. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared to us. When the kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. What happens when the kindness of God is made known? He saved us. He saved us. Not according to not by the righteous deeds that we have done, but according to his mercy. What has Israel done to save themselves? What has Israel done to deserve this type of blessing? Uh, nothing, actually. Exactly, grace. Grace upon grace upon grace. And the tender voice of grace woos us away from our sin to God. Secondly, the voice of grace is intimate. See the, the intimacy that is happening here in verse 16. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. And no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of Baals from her mouth and they shall remember me by name no more. So there's almost this rivalry right now between God and 
and Baal, the faithful husband and the, the one who's wooed the wife away in infidelity. And God's like, I'm not about to be outdone by Baal. It's not going to let it happen. And as enticing as Baal might be, God will draw them all the more. He's going to lure them, but he's not just going to lure them to abstraction. He's going to allure them to intimacy with him. It's almost as though God is saying, when I am kind to you and I take you into the wilderness, it is a discipline of my grace, and my grace will change you. And though you once called me Baal, that's what they called God, Baal. You will call me my husband. It's almost a renewing of the wedding vows. This is covenant language here. Do you see what God's grace does? When, when God is tender and God is intimate with us in his grace, God's grace reorients our worship. And their relationship with Baal was, by the way, just so you guys know, anything but intimate. It was not great with Baal. It was a rough relationship with Baal. You guys, the way the Canaanites worshipped Baal and how many Israelites got seduced into worshipping Baal was, it was very transactional. It was not intimate. People would go to the temple of Baal. They would sometimes sleep with a temple prostitute. They would give sacrifices, perform religious duties to earn blessings, to work for favor, to work for blessing that they may not even get. Even God's people would, would, would do this. And so if they want a blessing, they had to become slaves to the system of Baal. It's like verse 16 when it says, and no longer will you call me my Baal. The word for my Baal here and, and the Hebrew poetry is actually saying my master. So do you see the contrast here? Israel is in this Wrong relationship with Baal, but it's not going well. They are slaves. They have been mastered by Baal. No longer will you be mastered by this idol, God says. You will belong to me as a husband. You were once enslaved to a system, but soon you are going to be in a relationship with me. What does that relationship look like? He says, call me husband. Because his grace is intimate. His grace is, yes, tender, but his grace is, call me husband. Now, some of you guys are just really, too, you're too masculine for even Christianity. It's like, I don't want to be called a bride. Well, you are, okay? You just deal with it. You're, you're the bride of Christ. We are. The church is the bride of Christ. The bride of God is his people, Israel, and we belong to him in this intimate way, and it's not gross. It's beautiful. We just need to change our thinking a little bit. I don't know how you need to change your thinking on it, but you need to change your thinking because even I was a little bit weirded out by this, but this language of calling me husband, it's speaking of what? New love. That in that day, there's going to be new love because of his grace, new intimacy. There's going to be a relationship with God. It will not be platonic or transactional. In fact, verse 16, when it says, in that day, spoken is talking in part about the grace of God that will come alive when the Holy Spirit touches the lives of God's bride, his church. And he makes those who are dead and trespasses and sins alive in God. 
where we were once at enmity with God, the Bible says, now we've become friends of God. We know God because of his grace. We are his bride and we become his husband where there's intimacy and knowing him. God is promising that there is a day coming when future grace will change how they relate and know God. But this is also talking collectively about the future grace of the gospel of the kingdom coming to God's people in and through Jesus. There's a day coming when I'm going to send my son. In other words, he's saying very abstractly here, but he's alluding to it. A new covenant is going to be made. You're going to call me my husband. How is that going to happen? Well, there's going to be more of that even next week. But for now, they had been calling God Bali'i, or Baal is my master. You guys, how blasphemous is that? That is like Christians calling God Allah. Allah, the, the God of the Quran, the Islamic God, which, by the way, is not the same God that we worship. There is a major difference. Imagine us calling Allah. Or that is like someone calling God, mislabeling him, is just saying, God is just a force, you know? God is just an energy. No, he's not. People say that about God. Imagine someone calling God, the true living God, one of the, the Hindu gods, Krishna or Vishnu. And even though they receive the breath in their lungs and all these great things from God, they mislabel him. Today, there is even a movement in Christianity that we have to be very weary of and stay away from because some believe that God has a fluid gender and that it's wrong to refer to God in a masculine way. That's what people say. That's what people and Christians, supposed Christians, professing Christians are actually saying. But God makes no apology here. He says, call me husband. Know me. Pursue me because I pursued you and my voice of grace is revealing who I am. There is no other name like God. He is making a point that everything is in a name. God, Yahweh, Jehovah says, call me husband. The intimacy there. And so God in his grace, he will change the affections of our hearts. He will change the affections of their hearts so much that they want... The name Baal won't even be on their tongue. They won't even remember Baal anymore. Because the praise of the glorious name of God will be continually upon their lips. It's a great prophetic promise and hope in the midst of this unfaithful bride. The voice of grace is tender. The voice of grace is intimate. And then lastly... The voice of grace is powerful. The voice of grace is powerful. It is powerful enough, think about this, to move an entire nation into the wilderness. <laughs> an entire nation, by the word of God, is going to be brought into the wilderness. And the way God is going to do that is he is going to appoint Assyria in 722 B.C. to go in to Israel take the people of God captive and pull them into the wilderness. It's 
pretty powerful voice to be able to do that. If you look at verse 18, in another display of the powerful, gracious voice of God, he says, And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beast of the field, the birds of the air, of the heavens, the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord your God. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land. Here it is, and I will have mercy on no mercy. I will say, not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. Pretty sovereignly powerful statement here from the word of God. If someone is described as a nice guy or a nice girl, if someone's described as kind, what does that usually mean culturally? That they're what? They're weak, maybe, right? Oh, they're just weak. They're just—they're nice, but man, they're—they're they're just weak. Kindness is associated with weakness, and then you throw an intimacy on top of that. Intimacy and kindness. God is kind. God is personal. But God is not weak. God also reveals himself here as sovereignly powerful. Speaking of the omnipotence of God, in fact, 11 times, if you want to know, and the verses we just read, and the verses we just read, let alone beyond the verses we just read, but 11 times in these verses, God is telling Israel, I will, I will. 11 times. In other words, what God is going to do, God is going to do, and nothing is going to stop him. Because God is powerful. No plan of man, no work of Satan is going to derail God from accomplishing his sovereign will. What we believe as Christians that there are, there are wills in God. There's the, there's the prescriptive will of God. What is that will? Well, God makes his will known to us through the Ten Commandments, Right? He makes known to us that you shall have no other gods before me. That is God's prescriptive will. He's making his desires, his will known to us, but that is not his decreed will. His decreed will is different than his descriptive will. His decreed will is, I'm going to do it and nothing's going to stop me. And God is saying here, this is his decreed will, his hidden will being made known. I'm going to do it. And no one's going to get in my way. And in this poetic language, the powerful, this powerful husband, this God is going to reunite himself with his people through a covenant. And God, in his promises, when he says, I will, is going to make them what they are not. He's going to make them what they are not. Why? Because he is powerful. In fact, he's going to empty them of their own power. You guys remember he even said he's going to break their bow 
and the sword and the war from their land. He's going to empty them of their own power. He's going to make them weak so they would see his strength. Don't come to God in your own sufficiency. Do not come to God in your own strength. The good news is God comes to us and he allures us and he pursues us in our weakness, in our spiritual adultery. He calls us. And what I love in this verse, in these verses, especially verse 19 and verse 20, he will unite his, himself with his people in righteousness, justice, steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness. Does that sound like Israel and Hosea chapter 2 right now? No. But one day it will be. Not because they are faithful, but because he is faithful, because a new covenant will come. I just want to say this as we begin to wrap up this message. God is not finished with you. He's not done with you yet. If God has committed himself to you, you are his forever. And from the moment you first believe to even this present moment you are walking with God, don't come to God in your strength and sufficiency. Come to Him in your weakness. And how do we go in one chapter from not my people to my people? How do we go from forgetfulness to remembrance? How do we go from adultery one day to faithfulness another day? How do we get from not my God to my God and you are my people? because of God's tender, intimate, and powerful grace. Because of a new covenant that he is promising to them, they look forward, they should be looking forward in faith and the future of what will come, and that is Jesus. We, 2,000 years later, don't look forward, we look back 2,000 years to a promise that has already come to realize Jesus can turn any spiritual adulterer into a faithful worshiper of him because God is gracious. That is our hope. And he who began a good work in you, he is faithful and he will bring it to completion. So know him. Know his kindness towards you. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Know the intimacy that God wants to have with you as a husband to a wife. I know that his grace is powerful and his grace will reorient our worship. But all these promises only belong to those who belong to Jesus. If you are not in Christ, this covenant promise is not for you because you have yet to be wedded to Jesus. Know Jesus if you don't know him. Love Jesus. Repent of your sins and realize that it is only by his grace can you be saved and believe on his name. 
And you too will have these promises. Let's pray. Father God, you are so gracious. We've been caught red-handed in sin. Yes, there are consequences, but you allure us and you are gracious to us. You do not treat us like our sins deserve. We admit that we are spiritual adulterers and that we need you, God. So even as we're praying now, if there are those in here this morning, Father, who don't know you, I pray that by your grace you would open their eyes to see their sin is adultery against you. And if that is you this morning, would you pray to God and when you would you ask him to open up your eyes to see the beauty of Jesus and to see the ugliness of your sin and that you would repent? That you would love Jesus more than loving created things? God isn't calling you to a transactional relationship where you do a bunch of good things for him. God has done everything for you in Jesus on the cross and all you must do is believe and be wedded to him by faith. So confess, so believe, Christian, brothers and sisters, may we also confess. And may your spirit, Lord, build up our souls to realize the profoundness of your grace in our lives. Love you. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.